The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. We seem to be talking a lot lately about oddball airplanes. <laughs> they just maybe it's the spring; they're all coming out of the out of the hibernation or something like that. Uh, let's see now. There's a story I came across in a website with the the odd name of Weird Worm. Never heard of Weird Worm before. Never heard of that. But Weird Worm <laughs> has presented us with a list of what they describe as five theoretically awesome attempts to fly that failed. So let's just take a look at this and see what we've got here. Uh, let's see now. The first one, what am I looking at here? I would have sworn it was a picture of an airplane last time I looked at it. Now, are you guys seeing a uh, a uh, video with a football player? Oh, I see. That's the ad. No, right. I'm going down lower here. The yeah, Christmas bullet. The Christmas bullet. Okay, so here's a, an odd-looking little, let's see now. It's a high-wing monoplane, kind of short and stubby, kind of square. It looks like something, but I can't quite place it. It makes me think GB for some reason. Um, yeah. And... Uh, is that a little? Oh, that's a that's a little sort of stagger wing thing on the bottom. Um, it's got a yeah little stubby yeah. stagger wing down on below. Kind of a cross between a Jenny and a and a Fokker triplane. Yeah, and uh, from the looks of the engine compartment, there's something big in there. I mean, big for its time. And big radio, anyway. Yeah, David, you know every airplane in the world. Do you know this Jeez. one? Uh, <laughs> not 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 even close here. Oh, look at this. Uh, look closely. I thought, when I first looked at it, I thought that, you know, the engine compartment's so big, it's got this sort of Spirit of St. Louis deal where you can't really see straight ahead, and maybe there's a... But if you look more closely, it looks like there's an open cockpit up on the top of the whole well, thing. There is. You actually look over the top mm -hmm. of the wing of this. Yeah, right. Oh, man. <laughs> I which, don't know about that. Uh, which, uh, which might be okay in level flight, not a descending turn to the runway, but the instant you slow down for, for the threshold... Uh, you know, you you better be looking out of the side of the puppy because you're not going to see it. And it looks like a big inline six in there. I don't know if it's an yeah. OX five or something like that, and a great big radiator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Named after it's called the Christmas bullet. Named after the jolliest murder weapon in history. I'm not sure what that means. Um, this number, they're referring to the airplane as a number. This number was designed by Dr. William Christmas. Judging by his track record, Dr. Christmas had no business being anywhere near something that could potentially fly. And, and that will be the quote of the week. Yeah. His first few attempts into the world of aviation design ended in disaster, and that was before he founded his airplane sales company in 1910. <laughs> in his defense, everyone else was doing the whole aircraft thing at the time. It was the 1910s equivalent of Ebony. I don't know what that reference is, but it's, it's probably some clever cultural reference. Okay, that's number one. Number two, this kind of I think this is kind of a cool airplane, the Goodyear Inflatoplane. All right, it's a uh, looks, wow. Looks very much like the. Uh, 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 wow. Breezy, the breezy mm -hmm. that we see at mm -hmm. uh, at Oshkosh a every summer. A, a blow up breezy. It's, it's an inflatable breezy. All right, um, both the fuselage and the main wing, and apparently the empennage are all inflatable. And uh, um, there's an engine up on top of the wing, and the uh, pilot sits way up front in front of the inflatable. Uh, this is a tail dragger, high plane, mono wing, 
interesting and uh apparently the see now from the people that brought you tires comes the inflatable plane the premise was simple enough a plane that could be quickly inflated into form and easily transported for use wherever necessary and here's a here's another candidate for quote of the week yeah 12 inflatable planes were built between 1955 and 1962 before the army came to the startling realization that an escape plane vehicle that's prone to deflation at the hands of stray bullets, shrapnel, birds in flight, and a gentle breeze was probably <laughs> not the best means to rescue those. Yeah. That there you go. All right. So that's On the, the other hand, for a non-hostile environment, it looks like a lot of fun. Could be. Could be. Uh, yeah, but, you know, be sure you, you know, carry some duct tape with you. Yeah. That's those holes. Well, so, it, it, it's got to land slowly enough that no matter which way the wind's blowing, you could you probably land across a runway at most airports. And, and you know, you don't, you're carrying your airbag with you. Uh, there yeah. you go. And I was thinking if you inflated it with helium, Just then it becomes a stall crash, plane, right? Crash uh-huh. backward. Yeah. <laughs> this next one is, uh, in my view, kind of legendary. I've seen it. The Hiller VZ-1. Uh, yeah. It's a, uh, how would you describe this, David? Um, you stand on this crazy. platform that has crazy. Oh, crazy. Some, some sort of ducted fan underneath in the platform. And, uh and you just stand here, uh, surrounded by railings, and uh, theoretically control the airplane. Um, did this thing ever fly? I, I've, it's it's flying in the shot fly. that you're looking at, yeah. Yeah? How high? Does it fly out of ground effect? Uh, I can't answer that. Let's it's been now. so long since I've seen any, any uh, art on it. And this doesn't have any perspective. Uh, th- this guy could be three inches or... 30 feet off the ground, and I can't tell yeah. from this particular yeah. ground. I want to say that there's one of these things. Um, the, there's, an, there's a really cool aviation museum in uh, San Carlos, California, um, at, uh, at San Carlos Airport. And, uh, and it's called the Hiller Museum. They're a big sponsor of it. Uh, so, and I get the feeling that there's one of the. I just kind of vaguely remember. Some listener will tell us whether I'm right or not. But uh, um, So that's one, too. Uh, naturally, the Army would want to employ... The use of hovercrafts, craft, craps, to combat the growing cobra. I don't understand. All right, these are long. This guy's kind of having fun with the uh, with the descriptions, uh, not so uh, purely descriptive as they are. Well, it, uh, well, you know, if you think of uh, oh, delightful little movie from I don't know, uh, fifteen, eighteen years ago, called The Rocketeer. Oh yeah. Uh huh. And, and and the little jetpack, alcohol fueled uh, turbine powered jetpack that he used to zoom around. It even had a helmet with a vane on it, which gave him his yaw control. Yeah, yeah. The picture. F- is it is that an L or an I? The Feisler Fi one hundred three R. Let's see now. This is a uh, developed by converting the V one flying bomb into a manned aircraft. Okay, so picture. Uh, Sort of sleek, almost jet-looking plane, and then you've got a big honking stovepipe on the back, trailing backwards, and apparently they fire some sort of thrust out of this thing. The problem with the 103R was obvious. If it was successful, it it would explode and kill the pilot. If it somehow failed, I don't know. I'm not buying that one. What's next? The parachute coat. Well, see, now this is not, this has turned out to be quite the thing here. All right. Uh, Franz Reichelt was a man spited by fate it seemed his life was destined to be that of a tailor but he had a different dream the new world of the 20th century anyways he wanted to fly and there's a picture here of this guy wearing 
um, you know, sort of a, a jump <laughs> jumpsuit, literally, uh, <laughs> um, with lots of of, of extra- extraneous material, so that it presumably it, can turn into a wing of some sort when he's. Uh, Okay. Somewhere here, Adam quote, West quote, quote and Batman themes playing in yeah. my head. Okay, no, quote, another candidate for quote of the week. Go ahead. Quote of the, no, this there's, this is the winner. Working under the assumption that everyone wants to look like a gay magician as they plummeted towards the earth, Franz designed what was part oversized overcoat and part science fair runner-up. <laughs> that's well you know and the irony is that they do this now i mean they now they figured out how to do this you've, well, you've seen pictures of these crazy yeah, guys yeah. you know with the little flying you know but they also have a real parachute on that um when, when they're doing that they also have a real parachute that's true. i guess that's sort of a requirement but uh, anyways let's see now is that it or are there more there's i think that's fine there's another page here yeah no the page is just stuff. so anyways that's uh so david would you fly any of those airplanes uh well definitely not number four. Right. Which uh, one was four? Four was the rocket. That's the Feisler, right? Yeah, the rocket uh, which thing. Which basically reminds me of a V one that they put a human flight control system in. Right. Well, apparently that's literally what it was. And uh, yeah, and and th- that was a one-time machine. It, it was never designed to land. So yeah, that one would not not make my list. Uh, back here. On page one, the inflatable plane—that's the one I would fly. The inflatable plane, yeah. That that would that would. After I watched somebody else fly it, after I watched them put it together, uh, because somewhere in there there seems to be a rigid spar uh, or some kind of uh, load-bearing device because it's got the struts there to help. Uh, you think? But yes, but probably filled with air. Yeah, okay. That's, yeah. So the air does the function of the rib, wing ribs, but there's still a spar that, that gives it gives it latitude. It'd be interesting structure. seeing the, uh, the, three, the uh, yeah the three view drawings in a transparency. Yeah, yeah I'm sure those exist. It'd be Anyways. hard to do a cutaway, though. All the air would. Oh, I'm out. sure somewhere in the in the bowels of the Goodyear file system, they have something on this. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways. Uh, well, there we go. Five uh, unlikely airplanes, one of which Dave would even fly. I would even fly. Well, think how easy it'd, make, it'd be to make the ultralight weight limit on that, particularly if you filled it with helium. Helium, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, welcome, folks, to episode 177 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Recording this episode, episode, episode uh, on, <laughs> on... Easy for you to say. No, no. Um, on, well, I'll tell you why. It's Friday afternoon, uh, April 2nd, 2010. Um, a very, very unlikely time for us to be doing the podcast, but it's the time we were able to find. Um, we wanted to do it a couple... We, wanted to do, we were going to do it yesterday... That would have been April 1st, which would have been a hoot. That would have been great. Um, I think we would have been fools to do that. We were originally going to do it, what, earlier in the week on Tuesday or something like that, all right? Or sun- No, Sunday. That's what it was, Sunday. The problem, Sunday. Was, the problem was that Dave and I were both traveling, and we were both uh, in the thrall of, of incredibly bad internet service, and, and then Jeb lives at Hidden River, so there you go. That um, <laughs> was the first time I actually got to see what a thrall looked like from yeah. the outside. So we decided to pass on uh, on Sunday, and then we thought we were going to do it last night, um, and I was traveling home from uh, from my latest trip, uh, and it took me a way longer time to, to get back from New Jersey than I thought it was going to. So we had to po- postpone that. So now we're together on Friday afternoon, and, uh, and uh, here we are. Um, let me say hi to my friends here in the hangar. Dave Higdon's out there. Dave is uh, joining us from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Lovely. Just lovely. Looking forward to 
a weekend and then a couple of weeks just filled with airplane stuff. So yeah, yeah, it's getting to be and that time. getting to be that time. Now you were like traveling. What did you do? Anything fun aviation wise, or that was just a vacation? You, uh, you, you it and was. Bride. It was it was a working vacation, uh, and uh, I can I'd, after the introduction speak a little bit about the the most impressive part of the aviation experience okay. that uh, I had in, on on a little trip to uh, New Orleans. Oh, cool, cool, yeah. All right, well, let's move along here, and we'll come back to that. Also, here in there, our virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Good morning, Jeb. Afternoon. Good morning. Good afternoon. Such as the case may so just be. Just barely. Just barely. Barely. Yeah. yeah. How are you doing down there? And so now I, we need to check in on the weather situation. This is one of the first um, weather checks we've done on this podcast that's really crucial. We need to know whether it's getting warm down there yet. It, it's starting to. Yeah, the, the uh, mid-afternoon would probably bring high 70s. Uh, overnight would bring high 50s. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, so it's it's entirely tolerable. This is important because uh, because Dave, yes. I, and many listeners are headed that way soon. And, yes. And... Uh, and um, nice weather is perhaps secondary, but it's high on the list. It's not yeah. not unimportant. So, anyways, it, you still need to bring a lightweight jacket. Um, well, that's what. What is it, Dave? The, David, the, what is it you like to say about packing for uh, sun and fun? Sun and fun and Oshkosh. I like to pack for three seasons. Right. And, and those three seasons are. Oh, fall. spring, summer, and fall. Yeah. Figure on every on anything's possible except uh, snow and ice. Right. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and, and I am talking to you one last time. I thought last week was the last time, but I am back this one last time uh, in the home office here in Dover, New Hampshire, um, where tomorrow is moving day. Tomorrow the uh, truck arrives, and uh, load all my furniture in and stash it in storage so that I can be a nomad for about a month and go down and, and play in Florida and, and work, but mostly play. Um, friends help you move. Real friends help you move bodies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thought we weren't going to talk about that, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So what else is going on here? Let's see now. Oh, here's a disturbing, I don't know if it's disturbing or if it's much ado about nothing. Um, a, uh, a near collision between a uh, Boeing 777 and a, I'm not sure what, but a small airplane of some sort. Well, they, well it they, turned out to be a 182. Right. They initially said it was an Aronka Chief, which gives rise to a whole bunch of questions. But then they, then they later referred to it as a light uh, Cessna. And uh-huh. I wouldn't consider a 182 to be a light Cessna, but okay, go ahead. But it's, it's, it's turned out to be a 182. Okay. And, and, Jeb, is this something you've looked into at all? Do you have any details on what really happened I, here? I don't really. Um, from my, I, there's, there's ATC audio out there. Um, uh, AvWeb has a clip. Um, the uh, whatever the I forget the name of the website that that tracks ATC audio um, was was the kind of the, the source for that. Um, the NTSB is making a big uh, deal out of it. They've sent uh, some investigators. I'm sure uh, I think it was United Aircraft. Um, yeah, uh, it was United. United. Ventures, yeah, uh, United has has asked for the tapes and and calling it a near miss and, and this kind of thing. I, you know, um, not it, to, it, it stri- real quickly. Yeah. It, it strikes me that the crew uh, overreact a little bit. Yeah, and uh, I'm not sure if I'd use that quite that strong. I term, wasn't there, but, so I, but I but I agree. My, here's my my take on it. And again, before I go into this, let me say that I think you should take all these kinds of things seriously. You need to sure. examine these situations and make sure you you know to learn from them and make sure there isn't some procedural problem that you need to fix. Um, but having said that. 
what little I know about this sounds like it was more what I would characterize as a paper near miss. Um, mm-hmm. This was just a technical near miss. They, I, I'm not even convinced from what I've read that these aircraft would have collided if they hadn't evaded each other. And they it's each, not it's not looking like it. They each evaded each other. It sounds to me like the light plane was maneuvering to get out of the way already, and that was uh-huh. going to solve the problem. All right, and the the seven seven sevens TCAS went off because that's the. That's, that's what it does, problem. all right? That's you know? the big problem right there. Is, um, is, it went off, uh, you know, because it's cautious, it's conservative, which is probably not a bad thing. Um, but uh, so they, they, you know, did an, a, a, a relatively minor evasion from what I've read. And Well, and it, let, let's get down to the, the nub of a couple of details here. Uh, Separation-wise, they never got closer than 1,500 feet horizontally. Right. Oh, they they at one point were within 300 feet of being at the same altitude, but still never were at the same altitude uh, from this 300 vertical foot separation that has been quoted. But 1,500 feet horizontally is as close as they got. Uh, right. uh, unless there's some capability in a 182 to rapidly accelerate and climb at near the speed of light, it's not going to hit a, one, a, a 777, mm-hmm. particularly one that it already has sight of. Uh and if there's a an issue here, it's sounding and reading a little bit like it may have been, uh, a, I'm not sure, a handoff error or uh, a frequency change error, but something that involved ATC right. not having this per spec. And I think their separation there is supposed to be a mile. Yeah. Well, this yeah. is, you know, obviously the, the, the tower environment um, at, at San Francisco and... Uh, um, clearly, apparently, let's put it that way, the 182 was, was um, uh, you know, operating under an appropriate clearance. The 777 was, was just launching. It was actually headed for Beijing, so, you know, it was heavy and, and by, na- by definition, fast. Uh, but uh, just having sucked up the gear and, and, you know, configuring the airplane, all of a sudden there's a TCAS alert and... Um, uh, and whatnot, and yeah, I can see how that would divert some attention in the front front office. Yeah. Um, but but one one final thing, um, Tower should have alerted the triple seven that they had traffic off the end of the runway. Yeah, this is what and I think what David was hinting happened. at. I think that that's where this the the problem crept in here is that they didn't at first realize there was a small plane out there. Um, and so I think that if my guess is, and this is totally speculation, we're just kind of like shooting the, you know, here, um, that the tower controller would not have released this, would not have cleared him for takeoff if he had known that small plane was there. I've flown this airspace a lot. This is a very, very common route. You fly up and down the peninsula to do what out there we call the Bay Tour, um, or we used to, I know it's been 10 years, um, and uh, you fly um you know, sort of offset to one side, but along the, the SFO, you know, um, geography there and it's very cool it's a very very cool area to fly in because you just get a great view of the of the uh, airport and all the operations on the airport and it's not at all unusual i've had it happen to me a couple times it happened when i was flying with uh with will hawkins uh, a couple years ago when i was down there we were flying through that area it's not at all unusual for one of these big planes taking off on what i bet is the same runway as this one to be actually restricted below the the right. uh, uh, transiting um, small aircraft, um, and, and it, it's routine. It happens all the time. It's very cool to be flying along in your Archer and uh, have a seven forty seven be called out to you and said he's restricted below you. You know, and you go, yeah, all right. So, uh, well, 
Yeah, well, you, you hope he's obeying the restrictions. Yeah, but you, yeah. and you also can't miss him, all right? You can yeah. see sure. and avoid, without a doubt, all right? Um, there's just assuming the 182 guy, and it sounds like he, he did see, and he was, in fact, maneuvering. I, You know, sounds to me like, I don't know. Go ahead. We had a night flight coming from uh, Mexico, where we started earlier in the day, and we were terminating at uh, Addison. Uh, on the east side of uh, the the Dallas, uh, northeast side of the Dallas uh, Fort Worth Metroplex, and talking to Fort Worth uh, Center and then approach, and then Love Tower. Love Field is the home of Southwest. That's mm-hmm. a few miles south, basically, of Addison, uh, and not too far. Uh, neither are all that far uh, east of Dallas Fort Worth International. And the controller was right up front. He said, uh, you comfortable around traffic? Can you hold altitude really well? Because if you say yes, I'm going to send you right over love. You'll have landing traffic below you. You'll have traffic uh, entering on the downwind uh, 1,000 feet above you. Are you good with that? I went, fine. Uh, it was night. We got all these three sevens. It was quite a light show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every. And everybody was in the loop, and every TCAS system in the, in, you know, within a half a mile is going off as we make these passes. But everybody knew. Uh, that's what it can be like when everybody's on their game and a controller or maybe somebody who did a handoff. Uh, you know, there's, there's, they're going to figure this out, yeah. and, and then we'll know. Does a, does a TCAS alert require reporting? As I recall, the NTSB recently revised their reporting requirements, and a, a, a TCAS resolution advisory apparently now does require some kind of a report. Yeah. See, I just think this incident. And that's that's the big that's the big deal here. Is right. the NTSB had to get involved. Right. Is that we wouldn't even have heard about this. This would have right. been procedural and handled, in, you know, in that in the tower or that local FISDO, and that would have been the end of it. Um, but because they had to report it, suddenly it becomes a big deal. And of course, you can understand that the mainstream media loves the idea of you know, oh my gosh, little airplane, big airplane, we're all gonna die. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Hey, speaking of we're all going to die, so uh, Senate has passed a bill, um, and uh, I don't know what that connection is. Um, Senate, I'm reading from, uh, what am I reading from? Uh, AP uh, on uh, on uh, Google.com. I guess it's part of Google News. Anyways, um, Dateline Washington, the Senate has passed a bill that would speed the modernization of the nation's antiquated air traffic control system by replacing radar with GPS technology. The bill was passed 93 to 0. Um, so this is ADSB, right? Um, is this is this this is, ne- this is next gen? Next gen ADSB being part of next gen. Right. Is yeah. this something new, or is this just one of the steps that would have come along anyways? Um, the latter. The latter, yeah. Yeah. So this is not an acceleration of the schedule, or this is just see we're doing what we said we were going to do. Yeah, I, I think they. I think the FAA got or the administration got a higher level of funding uh, for implementation of next-gen uh, systems. And isn't that date a little earlier? Wasn't the original date we heard like 2020 or something like that? Or 2020 was a compliance date for everybody. Oh, that's right. On board. Yeah, 2015, uh, I think, was the, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, throw the switch kind of date. 2015, yeah. 2014 in this, in this story. Yeah, I think that's t- 2014 is correct. Uh, they want most of the infrastructure, uh, the hardware, to be in place by uh, 2012. Uh, 
So this helps push along the money for that. That the FAA having to limp along on continuing resolutions uh, doesn't give them the flexibility to accelerate areas where they don't have dedicated funding approval from Congress. So things might limp along at the same rate they've been go- going when, in reality, the FAA could be moving faster in some areas. I have I have a question. Yeah. Yes. Um, if the airlines are going to get dedicated funding assistance to install NextGen, can I? I think so. I, I think that seems only right. I don't, I don't think that's in the cards, but maybe I'm mistaken. I don't, I don't think either one of them's in the cards right now. I think you need yeah. to organize as an airline. Uh, they're not uh, get, they're not getting much uh, air jab air jab L- L- LLC. <laughs> uh, they, they're not getting much traction on the idea that uh, if the federal government's going to do all this stuff on our behalf, shouldn't the federal government pay on our behalf? Uh, which is kind no, of the same no. argument. The federal government would never issue an unfunded mandate. Come on. Uh, we've all been through them before. Yeah, GA and commercial both. Okay. Uh, all right. So this is just a progress report, you know, yeah. and good deal. All right. Well, and, and there's some interesting progress too because, uh, well, like, yeah. the switch went on all across uh, the Gulf of Mexico uh, a few months back, and now about a third of the Gulf off coast helicopter support uh, flights are, are flying with ADSB and can fly IFR pretty much in uh, equal. Uh, efficiency is VFR, which they couldn't do before. The non-compliant helicopters, they still can't during IFR. Uh, South Florida is live. Uh, the Philadelphia area is live. Uh, the Ohio River Valley has been live, but they're going to enhance that. That's going to go up. Uh, and airlines are starting to uh, adapt to WAS and pick up LPV approaches. Uh, Horizon out in Washington State. Uh, they actually started using uh, LPV approaches in their uh, scheduled service uh, a couple weeks ago and where they had to, where a flight wouldn't have gotten in under the old uh, uh, non-precision approach that was available there. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is, it is happening. Yeah, there was a, there was a story um, I saw here within the past week or so. Here it is. Um, Southwest to begin satellite-assisted landings April 6. Of course, now, define satellite-assisted landing, and, and, you know, a lot of GA flights been doing that for a long time with a GPS receiver. Um, but uh, this is apparently a Wall Street Journal story, and, and just a, a, a brief uh, snippet here from it. But uh, um, Southwest Airlines will flip the switch next week on a cockpit software upgrade designed to cut down on fuel burn noise and delay. Starting April 6, about two-thirds of the Southwest fleet will begin using satellite navigation woo-hoo, you know, as they approach for landing at airports equipped with equipped for required navigation performance, RNP, a key piece of the next-gen air traffic control system. Southwest has invested $175 million in the technology, uh, in, an investment it claims it can earn back by cutting just one minute of flying time for each flight. And therein lies an interesting, uh, 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 the germ of an interesting discussion. If it costs Southwest 175 mil to to do this upgrade, and of course Southwest operates nothing but 737s, various uh, vintages of those 737s, but nothing but 73s, and they're going to save 100, or they've invested 175 million, and they expect to recoup that investment. Why cannot the other airlines? 
make similar investments with the expectation to recoup that investment down the road. I don't I don't understand why the airlines say that they need federal money to install all this equipment. That's that's kind of a puzzlement to me too, yeah. Jeb, because for let's say the average spam can GA driver to adopt a ADSB in and out. Right. They gotta have uh an appropriate transponder or ADSB transceiver, uh an IFR WAS capable GPS for position input. And then a multifunction display or some kind of display to show the stuff that is on ADSB in. If they don't want to see all that, like they don't without that stuff now, then they just need to put the out in, and that's really no different than changing a transponder. Right. Uh, it is not that expensive. And most of the fleet in the airline business already have the cockpit displays. Uh, you know, they, they may be looking at some uh, transponder. Well, we know they're looking at either a transponder or some kind of transceiver, universal access transceiver. Uh, most of them will go with the 1090ES extended squid or transponder upgrade for Mode S. It's not huge money. Uh, the interface work to put it live on their multifunction display. Uh, they're going to do it because it's going to be more accurate than TCAS or uh, uh situation displays that they can get through mode s now uh but we're not talking about uh gee many it's a, a complete cockpit overhaul here for every airplane yeah okay right right moving on here so uh off field landing of the week we've got uh, a story from uh, ea.org uh Let's see now. A, a Quickie Q2, owned and piloted by John Finley, EA member 394580, made an emergency landing Saturday morning on March 6 on Interstate Highway 25, parallel to Mid Valley Air Park, uh, Echo Niner 8, in Los Lunos, Mexico. John's plane is powered with a direct drive Subaru automobile conversion and was featured in the March 2009 issue of Experimenter. Uh, let's see now. I wanted to jump ahead here. Uh, John's morning departure for breakfast with fellow EAers was quite routine. Climbing north for two or three miles over the village of Los Lunos, the engine suddenly and without warning stopped. The tachometer read 25, 20, correction, 270 RPM from the windmilling propeller, but switching systems from standby made no difference. John said his only option at that point was the interstate. Last final paragraph uh, that I'm going to read. Uh, the southbound lanes of I-25 seemed more appealing due to reduced traffic flow, so John lined up. John says, there was one truck on the road right below me, and I'm fairly sure that I just barely cleared him. I bet he had nightmares last night about that UFO dropping out of the sky right in front of him, John told us. John went on to say, the landing was pretty normal, and I let her roll uh, for quite a while, so the autom automotive traffic behind me had a chance to figure out what had just happened and could slow down. Oh, yeah, one more paragraph. Um, Stopping in the middle of the two lanes, John jumped out and pulled his plane safely to the side, allowing traffic to continue flowing. John commented that the interstate was really smooth. He wishes his home field was that nice. So, uh, that's it. I don't know. A lot of airplanes landing on, on roads these days. It makes me nervous. Um, there, was there was a state aviation director in Kansas who once proposed putting up a system of uh, signal lights that could be controlled by a pilot, uh, you know, like pilot control lights at an, at an airport. So if he had to make a forced landing on a Kansas road, 
he could click six times on the right frequency and have red lights come up on the road to stop traffic so he would have some place to, to land. Uh I don't think it got very far, but yeah. sure. You think? I don't yeah, know. A new, a new twist on pilot-controlled lighting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Uh, Jeb, you, as I seem to recall, you did some research a while back into people who did emergency landings on roads. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. Um, was there any any uh, you know kind of message that came out of all that? What what, what did well, you learn? Well, there, there wasn't really, and I, I I did a little bit of research on it, and in time and and uh, workload constraints kind of interfered with with um, um, kind of completing that project. Um, one of the um, part portions of that, I, I interviewed a buddy of mine uh, who, uh, before I even knew him, had had landed um, dead stick to Comanche onto I-81 in Pennsylvania uh, near Harrisburg. And uh, basically he's droning along IFR in the soup and, and the engine starts spooling down. It's like, hmm, I think I'm going to have to land here real soon. And um, I, I guess the, um, the, the highway that he landed on was, was not very busy at the time. Um, and wasn't really any, um, uh, any, I don't know, stories or, or uh, cautionary tales or anything to come out of that specific part of the event. Um, but I think this, this instance where, you know, he's just barely clearing a truck and he let it roll for a, a while. So any traffic behind him, uh, you know, wouldn't rear end him. Um, I, those are all good, good tips. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the only thing that really kind of sticks with me from my training in, in earlier hangar flying is, you know, land with the traffic flow. Well, that's kind of a duh. Yeah. Uh, um, but um, I, I remember. <clears throat> I although, did a, um, although, let me yeah. the devil's advocate here. All right. If you landed, I mean, assume it wasn't very, 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 you know, it wasn't a lot of traffic. Right. Landing against the traffic flow would give the cars a better opportunity to see you coming. Well, <laughs> No, I'm serious. That's, that's, I know, I that's, know, I know. And as their eyes get great big, and they, <laughs> they, they, they can't find the brake pedal, and you're going, oh, yeah, or something comparable. Uh, no, you know, no, no. And, it's, and, and the guy gets out of the car and says, well, I saw him coming, but I couldn't do anything to avoid him because there was a Harrier landing in the median. Mm -hmm. I was taught as a child. I was taught as a child when you are a pedestrian walking along a road that has no sidewalk that you should walk on the left-hand side of the street so that you can see the oncoming traffic. All right? Absolutely. All Absolutely. Right? And I actually to to many people's chagrin, all right? I actually apply that rule when I'm riding a bicycle. Um, I prefer to ride in on the left-hand side of the street mm -hmm. because I figure that way I can see the cars that are about to hit me, all right, as yeah, opposed you, to... You, you uh, and I got into the same kind of trouble over that. But those are devices and situations where, first off, you're 30, 30 feet narrower than the airplane that you're landing against the traffic. Uh, and, and second, you can put all yourself over on the shoulder of the road or pretty close to it to begin with. Uh and your closing speed is barely greater than the car that's about to run you down. So, okay. Well, I'll tell so you. Let, me, there. let me throw this out. I have one word when it comes to uh, emergency landings on the interstate. All right, median strip. Right. Well, yes and no. I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of areas where you know I would I already wouldn't even want to put a car down in the median strip. 
uh, much less an airplane. You've got uh, abutments, you've got um, culverts, you've got all kinds of uh, uh, things, and and you know there's this nice little well there's this nice little strip of pavement there. You know, unless it's you know the Beltway in rush hour. Um, there have been, you know, obviously stories of airplanes that have been hit uh, by traffic. That uh, I'm not aware of uh, any. You know, I'm sure maybe one or two exist out there, but I'm not aware of any instances where an aircraft landing on a on a highway was hit um, by a, a vehicle, and as a result, uh, um, the occupants of the of the airplane were killed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's substantial damage to the airplane, and maybe they couldn't rebuild it or something. Maybe it was a, a write-off. But uh, as a rule, landing on a on a highway, people get out and walk away. Yeah. Okay. All remember right. that. Remember that. Uh, just before Oshkosh, what four years ago? Right. We 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 were sitting in the we were sitting in the Super Eight, getting ready to go out. Uh, or the show hadn't started yet, and the local news is playing video from this uh, Wisconsin State Troopers. In, uh, in 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 car camera, right? And, and what, what was it? The T six, T six, right? Yeah. Come down from behind and above him, and then land and made a clean landing. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, clipped a, a sign pole and put a ding in the leading edge of the wing. Right. And I have to tell you that I think having an airplane come over the back of your head as opposed to coming straight at you is just about equally going to require a fresh pair of pants. Uh, well, that, that's true, but it's going to be a lot easier to not hit it if it's in front of you and yeah. and rolling away from you. And accelerating. It's, if it's faster than you, yeah, it's going to be a lot easier to miss it. In, in, and I think in that particular event, the uh, the state patrol vehicle, I mean, the, the guy was at altitude and realized that he was not going to make the airport and told ATC, and someone very smartly and very quickly got on the horn to the local state patrol officers out there and said, look, there's an airplane landing on the highway if you can block traffic. And I think that's what this guy had done. I think you're right. He was preparing to do that. He, just, yeah. he was getting ready to do that. Uh, he was still rolling, though, when the when, mm-hmm. when the airplane came overhead. Yeah, but that and, video, uh, we should find that video because that video gives you a good example of what it must be like when somebody lands over the top of your head. It's like, whoa, crap, what the heck? Yeah, All right. uh, it... it I've always thought it was a great argument for putting horns on the belly of airplanes. It, yeah, it could work. Honk as you're coming in. What was beep, I beep. There was an airplane I saw recently, a while ago that had a big, no pun intended, honking horn underneath the. Uh, um, or you could do that whole, you know, you could do that whole uh, uh, apocalypse now, you know, um, flight of the Valkyrie thing. You know, uh, you know anytime you're, anytime you're going to do an emergency landing, you set off the speakers underneath the airplane. Yeah, landing. that's that's not going to generate any drag at all. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> all right. Hey, I can't read. I cannot read the uh, title uh, on the podcast. I cannot read the title of this next item um, because it's not family friendly. But it's uh, blowing snow, Jack. Yeah, okay. So let's see now. Jeb has called our attention to a PDF file, darn it, um, that uh, the headlines from the Federal Aviation Administration, Flight Advisory National Special Security Event, Nuclear Security Summit. What the heck? What's, what's the issue here, Jeb? What's got you all in a fool? Well, apparently there's, um, and I'm not sure what exactly the event is, but uh, uh, the lead paragraph here says, the United States government will host a nuclear security summit in Washington, D.C. on April 12 and 13. Um, basically, what they're doing is closing down the D.C. airspace yet again 
um, just because there's some special event there in the D.C. area. Now, the punchline here, and, and those, of, those of our listeners who are based in the D.C. area and, and those of our listeners who, who uh, are familiar with the D.C. airspace will, will understand what I'm talking about here. Uh, there's, there's two basic uh, uh, airspace configurations in the D.C. area, in, in addition to the Bravo. Uh, that is the Washington Special Flight Rules Area, or the CIFRA, and the Washington Metropolitan Flight Restrictions uh, yeah, Flight Restriction Zone, or FREEZE, F-R-Z. Mm-hmm. Um, the FREEZE is an area within which, uh, as far as GA is concerned, you must have um, special uh, background check and a, uh, uh, a secret uh, decoder ring number and um, some other various uh, um, checks and balances before you can fly in that airspace. The, the CIFRA uh, is outside of that, is, is I guess concentric uh, um, with the freeze, and is the area that you have to be identified and be on some kind of a flight plan uh, to, to exit, uh, enter, or transit through. Um, now, the flight restriction zone is, again, that airspace that everybody flying in at, anybody flying a GA airplane in, in any way, has had a background check performed. Um, they've been fingerprinted. Uh, they have their secret decoder ring. And they're all under constant review. If they slip up and, and uh, do something wrong, they get a talking to or they get that privilege removed. Um, so what, what's going on, and, 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 and let, me, let me, I guess, say this one more time with, with some emphasis. Anyone flying in the freeze is a known quantity. They've been vetted. They are not a security threat, yada, yada, yada. But just because we're having this, this so-called nuclear security summit, whatever the hell that is, in the D.C. area on two days, they're going to shut down the freeze. Uh, even though the people, the only people flying in the freeze are those who have already been vetted. Yeah. So, so it kind of makes you wonder, A, why do we even go through the process of being vetted if, in fact, um, anything that happens out of the ordinary, we're not going to be allowed to fly anyway? Right. right. Uh, well, it, you know. When, when do we get to the point of, I am not a threat? And um, um, why can't we, you know, just be allowed to, to, to go about our business no matter what's going on? Yeah. Now, well, I, I don't know about the security side, but I don't know who's going to be there. I don't know if we're going to have, you know, foreign heads of state or if we're just going to have middle managers from uh, various federal agencies here. Um, but, I mean, I mean, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, I mean, what's going on? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the beginning of a process. One of the stories um, um, Aero News Net published yesterday on April 1st, the headline was, President Obama imposes nationwide TFR. The quote from President Obama was, I've got a Boeing and I'm not afraid to use it. <laughs> Okay, this is an April Fool's story. Um, the FAA has imposed a nationwide TFR until further notice at the request of President Barack Obama. The president, embarking on a campaign to pump up the poll numbers for the recently passed health care legislation, said he might need to travel just about anywhere on a moment's notice. So, you know, uh, these, kinds of jokes are clearly... only, these kinds of jokes are only effective when they have some grain of possibility to them. Right. right? Um, and, uh, in yeah. that... Uh, it's clear that the folks uh, protecting the security uh, nuclear security summit are somewhat insecure. Uh, <laughs> there is no way around that. Uh, second, it's just a shame for all that 
the, the small fields that are being shut down completely during this out, out, out in the uh, well, uh, I mean, Cifra. It, it sounds either, to me like that they've been they've been like a like like us they they've contracted a social disease, Cifraus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, either either the the procedures uh, and processes that they've put into place work and are effective, or they're not. Agreed. And if they're not, then why do we have them in the first place? If they are effective, then why aren't they suitable for this this other, quote, event, unquote? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've not really ever seen a, a, a decent answer to that question. Yeah. Nor, um, nor, nor, nor will you. Uh, no, nor will I. Another news item that came out yesterday that I believe is legitimate, um, AOPA reported that effective uh, June 3rd, the FAA will be re- reducing the size of the restricted air, airspace at uh, President George W. Bush's Crawford Ranch from three nautical miles to th- two and from 5,000 feet to 2,000 feet. Um, so they're not all. They're not, well, I suppose this is the, the exception, right? Because they really are grabbing up more and more airspace whenever they get a, a chance. There was another story. Um, it said, oh, where was it? I didn't even put it on the list, but uh, it was a story about how uh, in order to train all of the UAV operations, they needed more military, you know, restricted space or MOAs or something like that. And uh, Of course they do. Yeah. You know, even though they're going to use less of them, all the ones that they had been using to train fighter pilots are going to become kind of available pretty soon. Uh, anyways. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Have we beat this one to death? I, I hate to see it suffer anymore. Put it out of our misery. Yeah. Uh, the Virgin Galactic uh, uh, aircraft flew for the first time the other day. Uh, the the uh, VSS Enterprise was. Um, this is the mothership that uh, Virgin Galactic is going to use to carry spaceship. What do they call it? Do they call it space? White Knight Two? All right. Wait a minute, no, White, White Knight. Hang on, back up, back up, back up. Yeah, You're okay. getting your spaceships mixed I up. I am getting my spaceships mixed up. White Knight 2 is the mothership. Um, Eve, I guess, is the spaceship. And Eve flew slung under the wing for the first time. Someone, someone has some real gender identification problems here. Why do you say that? Just all, all the virgin and... In Eve well, that's an interesting observation. I believe to... I believe that Eve is uh, Branson's mom's name. Oh, okay. Um, I think I read that someplace. So, uh, but uh, Freudian stuff aside, uh, very cool. This is just an amazing airplane um, and aircraft system. It's it just looks. Uh, it's the Virgin Spaceship Enterprise is the actual uh, space vehicle. Eve is the name they gave, right, as you say, in White Knight 2, Virgin Mothership Eve, VMS Eve, all the good British naming tradition. And every bloody enterprise Richard Branson has succeeded at has had Virgin in the name. Virgin Mothership? (laughs) Uh, VMS, what else am I doing? VSS Enterprise and VMS Eve. Uh, You know, sounds like... Virgin's mama ship to me, but VSS Enterprise, Virgin Spaceship Enterprise. I hadn't really intended to get into this whole Freudian thing when I introduced this <laughs> story. And I, didn't, uh, I didn't really intend well, to make but, that uh, focus one, of this one, topic. One of, them's, one of them's named after the supposed founder of the mother of the human race, and the other one's named after 
a, a naval vessel with a, uh, such a rich tradition that it's made its way. It's more, it's better known in sci-fi lore yeah. than for right. the navy ships that have taken the name. Yeah, Enterprise. It's been Enterprise. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, anyways, now if he shows up with some guy named Kirk to fly it, I'm out of here. Yeah, right. So Virgin this is uh, some Fathers. great pictures here on uh, Boing Boing's uh, website, and uh, I'm sure if you Google uh, Boing Boing Virgin Galactic VSS Enterprise, you'll find it. We'll put a link in the show notes too. So, uh, have we seen this new mothership in person yet? Has it been to Oshkosh? I guess is my question. I don't remember. I think. Don't think the new one has been. Yeah. Anyways. Could be wrong. Very impressive aircraft. Expected this year, but uh, yeah, that would be cool. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. Next is a story that may just be kind of a little technicality here. This is again from uh, EA.org. Barriers lowered for LSA flight into Canada. A recent revision by Transport Canada makes it more affordable and less cumbersome for light sport aircraft from the United States to be flown into Canada. Uh, Transport Canada's new standardized validation form, um, the uh, equivalent to the operating limitations for the experimental aircraft in the U.S., puts LSA on equal footing with U.S. amateur-built aircraft flying into Canada. So this is just procedural. Is this just paperwork, or is this uh, notable in some way? It's, it's good. It means our LSA friends can now fly across the border. I did. I guess they couldn't. It saves right? them $100. Oh, is that what it does? Yeah. Yeah, basically treats them as a, a normal aircraft. And what, what, how did it work before? I believe they had to get a special inspection and sticker or submit some paperwork about it. That, uh, uh, I'm not sure. Were they, when did they even start allowing them into Canada? I didn't think they what, were allowing experimentals or LSAs? Special light sport. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, we've, this may be maybe, maybe we should do additional research and come back. We may have found next. we may have found the item that we're not even prepared to like make things up about, <laughs> which is which means that we're really a field. Yeah, I know. All right, what else is on the list here? Let's see. Apparently, you could otherwise it uh, couldn't be made more affordable and less cumbersome. Yeah, they couldn't have been going in before. So. so let's see now. I should have read this in advance. Um, there's a, this is a, a, from a blog called Letters from Flyover Country. Um, the title, the headline of this blog entry is, Are Glass Panels Safer? The first paragraph is, The National Transportation Safety Board today released a report that said glass panels, basically computers, this guy says, um, are no safer than the steam gauges they replace. Um, that's not what it said. That's our... Basically, it says they're less safe, or... Um, the, you're saying the NTSB press release says they're less safe. The press release said well, had no better overall safety record, and in fact, if you right. peel the the uh, I think it's the third paragraph, the study uh, looked at accident rates of over 8,000 small piston-powered airplanes manufactured between 2002 and 2006, found that those equipped with glass cockpits had a higher fatal accident hmm. rate. Than similar aircraft with conventional instruments. Have you? Are they saying why? Well, they're basically saying um, there's a lot of apples, oranges, and tomatoes here involved. Okay, Um, they're basically saying that um, the glass cockpit, in and of itself, does not necessarily make an aircraft safer to operate, and that's a you know that's kind of a, an obvious assumption, or, or, or I was going to say that's almost a duh moment. Yeah, that's almost a duh moment. What what's going on here is um, 
Um, two two things, or a couple of things, and, and I'll mention two of them. Uh, one is uh, you, you have to control for how the aircraft are used. Um, and generally speaking, uh, there are always going to be exceptions, but generally speaking, um, the aircraft in question, i.e. those manufactured earlier in the last decade with glass panels, we're talking Sirai, we're talking you know, the G36 Bonanza, we're talking uh, some of the earlier, uh, the Diamond 40, things like that. Um, those aircraft are generally going to be used as traveling machines. Um, <clears throat> you could argue, I'm not suggesting this, but you could argue that uh, the glass panel is our generation's uh, bonanza, where you have uh, you know, the, old, the old saw of the, the doctor in the bonanza going out and flying in the weather and, and the airplane coming apart and, and um, everybody gets to go to a funeral. Um, the, the corollary, or the, 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 uh, the story goes, you know, the guy with the glass panel is a similarly situated professional as, as to a doctor, is, is not uh, the sharpest stick in the shed, um, and uh, gets in over his head and the airplane comes apart. Um, you have to control for how these airplanes are used, and, and generally speaking, a glass panel aircraft, all things being equal, is used more often for cross-country work than might its counterpart with a steam panel. Um, and of course, if you if you look at uh, older aircraft of similar capabilities, you look at say an early Cirrus uh, SR20 compared to a glass panel SR20 uh, of today, you're probably going to see um, a the, the aircraft used in similar fashion, and b you're probably going to see similar accident rates. But the other thing that um, uh, I mentioned two things. Here's the second one. The other thing the the NTSB uncovered here is that um, the training regimen, uh, the training curriculum, curricula, whatever you want to call it, uh, plural, ha- has kind of fallen down, mm-hmm. or had, had kind of fallen down earlier in the last decade. Uh, that's, I think, mainly what the, the NTSB discovered, uh, whether it's a matter of being able to use everything in the glass panel, whether it's a matter of you know, simply being able to interpret the glass panel, or whether it's a matter of being able to deal with um, um, partial or complete failures of the glass panel mm-hmm. and reverting back to uh, um, the, the emergency or the secondary um, uh, steam gauges. Um, training in uh, these kinds of aircraft earlier in the last decade was not uh, as good as it could have been, let's put it that way. Um, we we at, at safety at aviation safety magazine we did some have done some research on this in the past and and uh, I, I think it's safe to say safe to admit for example that um, early in the um, uh, um, I don't know life cycle if you will of of uh, the Cirrus SR22 for example with the glass panel. Um, there were perhaps a higher number of accidents and fatal accidents than anybody would have wanted. Um, Cirrus and the Cirrus uh, Owners and Pilots Association, COPA, um, put their heads together and came up with uh, a series of, of training uh, um, steps um, for, for new pilots in the Cirrus to take and for existing pilots to go back and get recurrent training in. And 
it, I think if if you looked at the um, the statistics today, now for some reason, this is kind of a rant here. For some reason, the NTSB looked at at four years of of data going back into uh, um, basically five years ago. Why they couldn't look at more current data, or why they couldn't compare more current data to that older data, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> everyone who has looked at this and everyone who has, uh, I think, commented on this NTSB study has basically concluded that, yeah, but, yeah, but um, there's been a lot more done with training since 2006. There's been a lot more done with um, not just uh, stick and rudder skills, but also in, in uh, self-assessment and in uh, risk management, and in in trying to train uh, people, you know, let's let's say a, 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 a an IT professional with maybe 300 hours goes out and buys himself a, a glass SR22. He doesn't have uh, the longer term judgment, the longer term decision making skills that um, um, some some other pilots might have had, uh, having having flown for several years or even a couple of decades. So. Uh, he is at higher risk, greater risk, uh, to go bend some sheet metal uh, than the other guy might be, irrespective of the, the aircraft's capabilities. That can be trained out. That that greater risk can be trained out by uh, uh, in, enhancing the stick and rudder skills, by enhancing the uh, the emergency procedures, the standby panel uh, uh, capabilities of the pilot, and more importantly, though, by, by making sure that he or she has a healthy respect for how to make weather decisions, how to make decisions relative to operating the aircraft. Right. And that uh, has been affected since the 2006 time frame. And it's pretty much my belief that this is, A, old news, and B, the numbers, um, if you looked at today's statistics, would be significantly better. Yeah. David, any final words on this before we move on? Well, real quick, the the, the data points we're guaranteed to provide us a look backward, and it's unfortunate, but uh, I imagine by the time they identified the data they needed and, and w- what they thought they wanted and sorting out what in what was sold in those years period that was glass panel and, and steam gauge so they had some frame of reference for the rates, that all takes time, and you got to stop at some point. But the big thing here is what Jeb said. Uh, for years... Transition training focused on learning the new speeds and the new the, the, the new control positions for the flap handle and, and, and how the trim felt. and you, you transition from one aircraft to another and you get some transition training. And the gauges in the panel pretty much work the same from one airplane to the next, from one manufacturer to the next. And then came area nav boxes to small aircraft that let you do more in the way of onboard flight planning, and that upped the complexity a little bit. But we adapted to that pretty well. That was a perfect time. That was a perfect use for the time that you needed to spend while the engine warmed up. Right. Was plugging in your flight plan into your Loran or your GPS. Uh, then moving maps came along, and it didn't change things all that much because the moving map basically just reflected what the GPS output was telling it to show. And you still put your flight plan in, you know, basically the same way. Now, all the systems are showing up in electronic displays. And there's variations in how the displays are, are colored. 
and positioned, although there's some standardization showing up from one box to another, there's some limitations that you need to learn about the hardware that senses the motion of the airplane and how that works, just like you needed to learn to recognize a dying gyro by more than the suction gauge being at zero. Uh, and now more of these airplanes that not only have primary flight displays with electronic displays, they have electronic engine displays and moving map stuff and weather. And the IFR GPS is now more like a flight management system and gives you so many more options on how you can use it than simply turning on the VHF nav, tuning in the VOR, and flying the needle. So training just in that stuff alone uh, for some manufacturers is uh, is part of a two- or three-day course that every buyer gets when they take delivery of the airplane. Right. If you you're getting a new airplane with a G1000 in it, chances are you're getting a three-day course to learn to use the G1000 separate from the transition training about flying the bloody airplane. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Um, anyone wants to take a look at this? This is uh, The blog is called uh, Letters from Flyover Country. It's a blog written by a guy named Bob Collins from uh, Woodbury, Minnesota, who, among other things, is building an RV7A. The, uh, the blog is actually rvnewsletter.blogspot.com. We got a. Uh, we heard from a good friend of the podcast, Charlie Becker, uh, sent us along a, a, a pointer to an interesting article that was in. Uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's the old our favorite aviation publication thing. It's from the Washington Post. Um, uh, the headline is "Combat Generation: Drone Operators Climb on Winds of Change in the Air Force." We've talked about this a little bit in the past, and that's I think why Charlie sent it along. The whole the whole idea that uh, aviation and you know military aviation, military combat aviation is changing from being one where the pilot is on board the aircraft to one where the pilot is on the ground someplace. And uh, first couple paragraphs of this story, the question scrawled on a Pentagon whiteboard last fall captured the strange and difficult moment facing the Air Force. Quote, why does the country need an independent Air Force? And uh, let's see, jump down a couple things here. The Air Force's identity crisis is one of many ways that a decade of intense and unrelenting combat is reshaping uh, the Air Force's identity crisis is one of many ways that a decade of intense and unrelenting combat is reshaping the U.S. military and redefining the American way of war. Talks a little bit about uh, the folks who uh, fly these uh, these uh, remotely piloted vehicles from far away and the paragraph, um, one of the money paragraphs here is, these new earthbound aviators are redefining what it means to be a modern air warrior and forcing an emotional debate within the Air Force over the very meaning of value in combat. It's an interesting story. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at it, but uh, um, it's, I guess, no surprise that this is a big deal. You know, the... Uh, the oh, man, you're talking about a huge cultural uh, yeah. uh, movement in, in, inside the Air Force, and it's going to be coming inside the, uh, the uh, air wing of the Navy as uh -huh. well. What's the likelihood that I mean, I, and I don't think this is likely, but let's just throw it out here for conversation. All right, the Air Force is, if I've got this correctly, the youngest of all of the branches of uh, our military. Um, That's correct. What's the likelihood that it will not last much longer? That all of this aviation stuff, all of this aviation support, is already largely a part of the individual other branches. I mean, everybody does aviation. Um, the Army does. Uh, the Navy does. The Coast Guard does. The 
Marines do. You know, what do we need an Air Force for? Because there are a lot of the things that the Air Force does that those other services don't exactly do or don't do as well. Yeah. And by the way, I recognize that at this very moment, Steve Tupper is banging his head against the wall. Right. right. Well, uh, one, one cynical answer is they have to you know, patrol the skies over Washington, D.C. to keep all the flibs out. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Um, well, I don't, not, not that I'm cynical, of yeah. course. What's the non-cynical answer, Jeb? Well, the non-cynical answer is uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> The non-cynical answer is typically, um, and I don't know if this is still valid or not. I don't know, I don't know if it was ever still ever valid for that matter. But typically, you know, over over the, the the battlefield, if you will, um, the the individual services, army, um, uh, army, navy, marines have have been given uh, the airspace below ten thousand feet, um, the, the ground attack role, uh, support role. Uh, the 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 uh, ferrying troops back and forth kind of role, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the Air Force gets the more strategic role uh, at the higher altitudes above ten thousand feet to ensure and to 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 achieve and and, and assure air superiority. Last time I checked, there weren't too many Air Forces around the world who could challenge the U.S. Air Force for air superiority. Uh, well, I don't think we saw a whole lot of that in, in, in Iraq. I don't think we saw a whole lot of that in Iraq, in uh, Afghanistan. Um, I think the last time uh, um, <clears throat> Air Force went head-to-head um, was Iraq 1, and that was, uh, I think, uh, charitably called the turkey shoot. Um, so, you know, from, from an air-to-air standpoint... Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a head scratcher as to perhaps why we might need a separate uh, um, uh, branch of the military. Yeah, David. I'm uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. The, there there are a number of other you know questions to be asked, and, and some of those answers would I'm sure argue in favor of retaining uh, uh, a um, a separate uh, branch of the military for, to support the Air Force. Those I mean I don't know. There's there's a lot of questions there, and there's a lot of uh, of um, of um, once you start asking some of those questions, then you start have to ask also some some questions that um, would uh, be very uncomfortable for other services uh, in the military. And uh, you know, kind of you know, what are we doing with all this money that we're spending? And and uh, um, do we really need to be spending all this kind of money on on our military when? Uh, the next five, or I don't know what the, what the number of, of militaries in the world uh, uh, don't equal what we spend in the size of the military we have now. Uh, we, we can have that conversation some other time. Yeah. David? Well, it bears it bringing into the discussion a uh, reminder that there are reasons why an Air Force was formed to begin with back in 1947 uh, when we fought World War II with an Army Air Corps. Uh, and that Army Air Corps and the naval wings had a terrible time uh, first uh, demonstrating and winning acceptance for the necessity of them uh, and then for the the hardware that they needed to actually engage and and succeed at the mission that they've been given and splitting off the service as to one engaged in global, strategic, and tactical airspace uh, control uh, was a good idea in 1947. A lot of those same reasons apply today. Outside the Navy's 
carrier on board tankers, for example, I don't believe any of the other services uh, maintain and operate a tanker fleet that all the other services aircraft get to use. Uh-huh. Uh, it's true, though, technologically and bureaucratically, it could probably all be boiled into Navy, too, all of it boiled into one service. Uh, you call it the National Combat Command or something. But uh, in terms of research and development and focus and a dedication to the mission and where their airspace overlaps, you know, the, 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 uh, the Army doesn't fly fixed-wing combat aircraft. Uh, they fly helicopters and fixed-wing recon, and that, almost all that's done now by drones. Uh, the Navy, Air Force, and the uh, Navy's uh, Marine cousins, they do everything else. Air superiority, ground support, uh, long-range bombing, uh, tactical support with air-to-air refueling and intelligence and reconnaissance. So it's there's a lot to go around. Yeah. I think uh, I think I'd like to hear from from some listeners, perhaps in the forums, um, or yeah, you know, yeah. send us some email or or, or record your uh, your comments uh, as audio and send it along. Uh, I'd like to hear from people who who are passionate about the Air Force's mission to um, educate me a little bit about uh, its place as as time goes on, because it does seem like it's changing, and uh, I know a lot of people who who have been in the air force and are are you know great patriots and and warriors who have protected our country and all that and uh, um i know they would hate the idea that the air force is going away so i want to be i want someone to explain to me where i'm mistaken here because i'm sure i am anyways let's see now uh shout outs i think i think we're down to that now where are we yeah I keep losing track of mine sounds like a good time um, an announcement that just went public today. Um, we've been hearing rumblings about this. We knew that uh, that, that this was sort of being worked on, and uh, and uh, I'm pleased to have been able to help just a little bit in putting this together. But uh, uh, Dave Shalbetter uh, and the gang at Sun and Fun Radio have announced today that for the first time ever, uh, Sun and Fun Radio will be streamed live on the internet um, dur- during the, the week of the air show. Um, they uh, have worked out an arrangement with uh, LiveATC.net, uh, the outfit that streams air traffic. Control control frequencies from all over the country and the world, I guess, for that matter. Um, and Live ATC very generously has uh, agreed for uh, basically no charge to uh, stream Sun and Fun Radio's uh, feed for, all th- for the uh, duration of the week. It's going to be very cool. So uh, there's all kinds of great stuff on Sun and Fun Radio, not the least of which is our two episodes of the podcast um, that we're going to be doing on, uh, what are we doing, Tuesday evening and, uh, and uh, Sunday morning. Tuesday evening, Sunday morning. morning. We're doing it in the morning. Morning, yep, absolutely. We're doing it in the morning. So, anyways, thanks to uh, LiveATC.net for uh, their support of Sun and Fun Radio and uh, all of the podcasters and all of the other stuff that goes on down there. It's very, very cool. David, what's the story on the uh, biplane fly-in? Is this the one that went away? No, it's not. Uh, It's a successor. Uh, You know, some of you might remember my lament that uh, 2009 was the. was the sunset of the National Biplane Expo at Bartlesville, Oklahoma, home of the National Biplane Museum. And uh, I guess shifting demographics, difficulty in organizing what was a very, very busy two, two and a half days uh, by a a great corps of volunteers led by Charlie Harris and and, and some of his EAA friends. Uh, So the National Biplane Expo sunsetted last June. Well, an EAA chapter in Junction City, Kansas, 
has decided to pick up the baton or the flying wires, I guess would be the, the appropriate, and launch its own biplane fly-in, the National Biplane Fly-In, uh, EAA Chapter 1364, Friday, June 4, Saturday, June 5th. Uh, early arrivals allowed in on June 3rd and late departures on June 6th on Sunday at Freeman Field. That's 3 Juliet Charlie is the designator. Freeman Field, Junction City, Kansas. Uh, I don't know if I can make it, but I'm sure as heck going to try because cool. it sounds like fun. And, and the biplane expo was always great fun. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. Jeb, you got anything? Uh, yeah, just real quickly. Um, we, we talked about uh, um, this NTSB study, and this you, you did, the link uh, came from a, a, a blog operated by Bob Collins out of St. Paul, Minnesota. Right. And just a, a shout-out to, to, to uh, Bob. He's a listener. Um, he's got quite the interesting blog here and um, uh, does some interesting tweets also. Just uh, thanks for uh, mentioning us, and, and thanks for noticing this NTSB uh, press release. Uh, and uh, keep up the good work. Yeah, very cool. I want to do uh, two quick shout-outs here. One to uh, a, a relatively new podcast, aviation podcast. It's called the Hangar 49 Podcast. Uh, I got We got an email from uh, a listener. Uh, he says, my name is Jim uh, Leighty, I think is L-E-I-G-H-T-Y, Lady or Leedy. Um, I'm a private pilot in the Pacific Northwest. I found your podcast a few months ago and have been really enjoying it. Your podcast has inspired me to start my own podcast geared toward flying in the Pacific Northwest. It's called Hangar 49 and can be found on iTunes. I've been enjoying being a podcaster, although this is all quite new to me. He says, keep up the good work and flying. And, and we would repeat the same thing to him. Keep up the good work. He's up to episode six uh, and uh, some good stuff there. You should check it out uh, no matter where you fly, but particularly if you fly in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I also want to uh, a quick shout out to I I, I uh, used uh, I, I uh, used Jim uh, Steve Tupper's name in vain a few minutes ago. Um, no, continuing to do amazing work putting together his acro camp, and yeah, uh, totally. if you're not already following his podcast, you should. Um, he recently uh, uh, he's now selected the four people who are going to get to uh, be what he calls the campers, um, who are going to go dive into a intensive uh, three day acro. Uh, aerobatic training program um, and uh, he's he uh, spent a lot of time selecting them in order to get an interesting mix of people and an interesting mix of experiences and a recent episode of the airspeed podcast uh, he introduced us to them had them all on and they talked a lot about their backgrounds and and their goals and the whole thing it's just amazing stuff and uh, so uh, I call your attention to this recent episode of the airspeed podcast uh, and uh, uh, this air acro camp is going to be very cool. It's you know it's funny because it's not intended to be a spectator thing, but a lot of people like are planning to go just to watch. Um, I know I am, and uh, I've started calling it Woodstock for pilots. I think that uh, I think that someday uh, I think that you know a year from now we're gonna you know people are gonna say were you at Acro Camp One? Oh yeah, I was. Oh, I'm jealous. I wish I had been at Acro Camp One. So uh, it's going to be very cool. It's going to be very cool. Uh, any other shout-outs? No. Okay, time to stick a fork in this one. Dave Higdon uh, is uh, an aviation photographer and an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, aea.net, davehigdon.biz, or uh, possibly hanging out at your local neighborhood airport watering hole. 
And Jeb Burnside. Uh, Jeb is uh, the CEO, chief pilot, and head flight attendant of Air Jeb, apparently. <laughs> He's also uh, an aviation journalist and currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. First of all, Jeb, tell us where people can find you on the Internet. And second of all, remind us about April 10th. I will. I'll do both. First of all, though, I'm going to mention that I'm uh, an A36 Bonanza just taxied past the front of the house. So. Okay. Um, at any rate. We're going to be there um, next week. We're coming. We're coming. It's going to be great. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I understand. I understand. Let's see. Um, let's do uh, uh, the Great Southeast UCAP Meetup 2.0 first. Uh, today is April 2, Friday. A week and a day from today. April 10, I got the date right this time, Saturday, April 10, 1,300 hours East Coast time, uh, the Venice Municipal Airport, Victor, November, Charlie, uh, the Honoluana Cafe, cafeteria, restaurant, wherever you want to call it, eatery, how's that? Um, 1,300 hours, uh, be there. Yeah. And and, uh, you will have... At least the three of us yeah. in attendance. Well, I, you know, I'm starting to get a little nervous, like we're going to gather a, a, a crowd here. Who was it? Was it you called our attention to someone on the D.C. pilots list who made well, this kind of yeah. casual comment that's like, yeah. oh, and by the way, I'm going to the UCAP meetup on April 10th. Well, he, and uh, Technically, he's going to Sun and Fun, but he's going to come down a day or so early and he's uh, going to try to hit. I personally, hit, I, I choose to view it the other way around. But okay. I understand, but I, I, I'm a realist. Yeah. So anyways, April 10th. Everybody should tour Venice at least once. Yeah. Yes. April yeah. uh, April 10th at Venice Airport. Uh, and where can we find you on the Internet, Jeb? Um, day job is uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, personal website, uh, I forget now, jeburnside.com. And uh, occasionally I'll pop up on AvWeb. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Stay tuned for an announcement of a new project that I'm working on. I think maybe next time I will tell you more about that. I hinted at it in Twitter if you want to go back and look. Rut row. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Thanks to – I'll give you a hint. Tomorrow's iPad day. Ooh. (laughs) Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips we have at the beginning of every episode. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. <laughs> all of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Live longer by flying, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. That's, that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFM. Very good. Okay. AMF. <laughs> Was it two Fs? AMFFN? AMFFN. All right. That's right. Thank, thank you, Dave. Okay. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> All right. That's know, enough. I didn't know anybody had actually noticed my, 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 uh, my use of it lately. And, uh, yeah, well, you know, just because we don't remark on it doesn't mean we don't notice it. You're, you're, cool. you're constantly under the microscope, Mr. Higdon. <laughs>